The night they invented champagne It's plain as it could be They thought of you and me The night they invented champagne They absolutely knew That all we'd want to do Is fly to the sky on champagne And shout to everyone inside That since the world began A woman and a man Have never been as happy as we are tonight. Hello and welcome to Top Shelf, where we discuss food, spirits, and all the other things that make life worth living. We are your hosts, I am Adam, and I am joined by Rex. Hello. Today we are recording from a popular yet humble wine bar in Eagle Rock. The Colorado Wine Company has been going strong for over seven years without becoming pretentious about the quality of wine and service they provide. They love what they do and want to share it with as many people as possible, as evident by the decor and overall feel once you enter its doors. Sitting down with us in their oh-so-comfy and inviting wine bar is one of the owners, Jennifer Morgan. Hello, Jennifer. Hello. So how long have you been here at the Colorado Wine Company? Well, including build-out a little over eight years. We opened seven and a half years ago. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, what gave you the idea to to start the, or get into the wine business, I guess? Uh, I was working in New York as an event planner for a really large bank, and um, it kind of unexpectedly fell to me to keep track of their wine cellar and keep it parred. And it was really high-end, and I didn't know anything. And I needed to research distributors and importers and all these things in the wine world. I realized how just vast it was and how interesting and you know who doesn't like wine and right we started taking classes my now husband and i and um it kind of the idea grew out of that especially after 9-11 the idea like really took hold in our minds oh okay yeah so you were in, in uh kind of just tracking the wine and they decided i guess saw how lucrative it could be as well as the variety of wines and that it was more like We'd never opened a business before, so we didn't okay. really know what kind of money we were looking at. We knew it would be quite an investment. It was more that we felt that it would retain our interest for a lifetime because there's just ah. so much to know and so much to learn. Yeah. And we just really didn't want to work for anybody else anymore. Okay. That's, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah. So how far do you think you are as far as wine knowledge goes now? Well, um, just by sheer numbers and exposure to wine, I can hold my own pretty well. I have not pursued getting any uh, master sommelier uh, certifications. I haven't really found it necessary. Um, I'm constantly pursuing my knowledge, and I taste between 30 and 70 wines a week. That is awesome. From all over the world. So you're probably up there, even at the advanced level at least. I mean... Yeah, I believe so. Like, I'm not... I cannot recite to you some things that wine historians know about the classifications in 1855 in France, which are kind of a watershed moment for wine history. Um, But I know the things that I need to know to run a really good wine store and to feel at home in the wine business. Okay. Yeah, because you, you mentioned that it's something you can capture your interest for life, which I think it would take an entire lifetime to learn everything there is about wine. So And you're still going. Yeah, exactly. So you're just constantly, constantly learning and uh, tasting all the wines, I'm sure, helps quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Is that, it's something I would like to learn more about, but I just I don't have the, the time or the budget to be tasting so many wines. Wow. No kidding. On, on a regular budget basis. Budget being a key part of that. I'm yes. really lucky I get to taste all the wines I get to taste. See, I that, mean, that is awesome. You know, like vertical flights of like ancient Riojas and stuff. I mean, that is just not something I'm going to stock. Okay. <laughs> very regularly in my life as a wine purveyor, but right. you know, it's really awesome to taste. It is like a total mind blower when you taste stuff like that. Okay. That, so that and the uh, the master court of sommelier. That's uh, 
it actually gets really political when you get to that kind of like level of certification and stuff like that because people build occupations off of, of those certifications basically mm-hmm. at that point, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's a – you can go to school for like two or three years and get a certification, not at the master court, but there was another one. And uh, people shell out like basically bachelor's levels of uh, money trying to trying to get it. And some wow. – and like ninety percent of them fail. Like that, it's <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy elitist. Right. I know that's a tangent, but yeah, you it know. sounds like quite a racket they got going on there. <laughs> <laughs> so, as far as wine goes, what is your personal preference? Well, my husband and I have come to this point where we're drinking mostly white and bubbly at home. Okay. The one kind of thing that I found to be true about wine, I I, I haven't become a snob about many things. Like because okay. I really do believe that like even like five dollar. Plonk has its place Absolutely. in any setting. You know what I mean? It's the money you have. It's the wine you want. It's the day you're having. It's mm-hmm. where you are. You know, buy the damn wine and enjoy it. Absolutely. Um, I've gotten pretty snotty about bubbly. Okay. <laughs> and I drink white wine pretty pretty much exclusively at home. Interesting. And, and do you find that that's because you're pairing it with, uh, like, it's a dietary choice also? Yeah, it just seems lighter to me. I, I mean, it is kind of like, a, you know, objectively lighter. But I, I notice that it just goes with a whiter array of food that I might find, might find myself eating more often. I'm just not like a barbecue person. Okay. I love it when I have it. Um, and I'm not going to drink a white with barbecue generally. So there's right. that. So. Yeah, cause I, I'm, I'm more into reds myself. It's pretty much exclusively reds. Uh, with the champagne every now and then, but it's mostly all the, always the Cabernets or the Melos or, or, or Chianti or however, I guess whatever, whatever is in the good price point at the time. Mm-hmm. As you, as you were saying, they, cause I have two different ways that I drink wine. One is just because I want to drink wine and one is for the o- occasion. Mm-hmm. So I'll for just me I'll get lower end stuff for myself because I'm not trying to really branch out. I know what I like and mm-hmm. it's in my budget. But then when I'm having people over, I'll I'll tend to experiment with different types, kind of to expand all of our horizons as far as the wine goes. Mm-hmm. And you're the guy that I'm always trying to convert. Oh, is that right? To get yeah. to try more whites. Okay. Yeah. I I I, th- I feel like I should. I've been told that I need to start getting into the whites, but every time I have one, it's it's it's, it's not bad tasting. It's just not as good as a red for me. Right. Yeah, maybe I like the more full body that the red gives, the all the the, the super fruit forward mm-hmm. stuff. No, I get that. Totally. Well, Jen and I were talking off air, and she said that that's actually kind of a phenomenon that she's noticed amongst people that drink wine, is that now they're more willing to kind of experiment and go outside of what their taste preference typically is and, and kind of uh, latch on to newer uh, newer ideas or, get, or or give stuff a chance, and, and that's... That's what you do here, basically, is that mm-hmm. you get them to go outside of their comfort zone and then try new things, and then a lot of times they end up liking exactly what you suggest to them, correct? Yeah, I find that really gratifying. I mean, just mm-hmm. to have, like, the smallest effect on somebody's life mm-hmm. when it comes to the money that they're choosing to spend on wine, which is really all about what how we reward ourselves, right? It's yeah, our time yeah. with our family, the food we eat, the wine we drink, how much money and time we devote to all those things. It's pretty precious. Yeah. So if I can get somebody to believe me about something... Like that they've never tried before and they're feeling pretty reluctant about. It's kind of cool. Like, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the the setting that you have here is, is very conducive to that. Because if you're at just like a party of some kind and you're trying to push wine on somebody, it's it's different than I'm behind the bar of a wine bar mm-hmm. and uh, I have all this mm-hmm. wine at my fingertips and I want you to try this one because I, I know about it. I, I think the, the the knowledge base that be, just being here I think would make me more more apt to try different things. And there's a lot of trust involved in that too. Like, especially at the holidays, like the Thanksgiving pairings. I mean, when you're talking to a woman or a man for that matter who has spent two days like 
shopping and cooking and prepping and shopping and all and money mm -hmm. and family and in-law pressure and politics and all this stuff that goes into a big important meal. You better not mess it up with the wine that you're recommending to them. And I, I'm really, I feel really happy that our clientele trusts us year after year to do that for them. It matters. Okay. So do you think your, your clientele is pretty steady with regulars or do you have a lot of people coming in that are uh, strangers that you haven't seen before? Well, I notice more and more people that I've not seen before. Um, like as the economy starts to improve again, people are buying houses in this neighborhood again. And, okay. you know, there was amount, like a certain amount of drop off when it got really bad and people were like cashing out of LA, you know, they were right. leaving. And so some of my regulars I lost that way. Uh. But our, I feel like once we get a customer, we retain them to a remarkable degree. And I think that's kind of a uh, characteristic of the individual service that you give here, too. I mean, you know a lot about wine, and you're the one that's have, building those kind of one-to-one -one relationships with the customers, as opposed to where you have uh, some of the larger retail stores where you basically have to trust the the word of, of the uh, the 21-year-old person who they just hired three months ago who is mm -hmm. yeah. studying their list but really has no idea of... Uh, how anything tastes, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you you are familiar with this wine to the, to the extent where you know how it all tastes. You were the one that bought it, so I mean, when you're giving giving a suggestion, they can depend on you to actually know what you're talking about. I think that's huge here, and that's the plus of like being having a small shop. Yeah. You know, like I, I I'm lucky. I have a good palate memory. I'm really great at remembering what that wine tasted like when I first tasted it. So that's helpful, and we're small, you know. So I should. And uh, recently, do you want to talk about the beer shop also that you own? Yeah, the Sunset Beer Company in Echo yeah. Park. We're really proud of it. It's been open uh, a year as of mid-September, and um, it's going great. And then that's beer exclusive? No, it's just overwhelmingly beer. Okay. Six taps. I mean, we're expanding the wine lineup all the time. You know, not everybody wants to drink beer when they go out. And Okay, and you do uh, tastings there as well? Like you yes, do they do. They do beer flights there. They do regular brewer guest slots. Um, we used to do food trucks. I'm not sure that we're doing that as much now, but they're constantly mixing up and, and doing themed nights and so forth. Okay. Well, uh, t tell us about the tastings that you do mostly at the Colorado Wine Company. Mm -hmm. It's uh, every Sunday. Is that right? Every Sunday afternoon, one to four, is a flight of four wines, 12 bucks, and uh, includes the cheeses, which are incredible, beautiful, high-end cheeses. Same thing Friday night, but it's 15 bucks for a flight of five. Okay. Uh, and then we have, you know, guest winemakers come in and they pour a tasting here and there. We do our white trust wine tasting every year, which is our biggest event. It'll be later on this fall. And okay. what, what can people expect when they come to that? The white trust wine tasting? Yeah. Um, it's really crappy, like 7-Eleven level All right. food or like food that we grew up with that's not considered kind of like, you know, going to pass the foodie test, like, you know, like <laughs> right. cream cheese tuna balls rolled in walnuts. That was like an Oklahoma favorite. Um, we did that one year. We did Twinkie, Twinkies with Moscato de Asti one year. So like the wine is really <laughs> nice. Really I'm sure it pairs well though. I mean, yeah. Like we did beef jerky one year with this incredible like Nebbiolo from South Africa. It was like All insane. Right. Yeah. I love right. that stuff. You also pouring some Boone's Farm for the tasting you. for the white trash. The wine is all <laughs> no, amazing. No, okay. the, the food is the shit. Yeah, okay. very good. <laughs> okay, so how do you choose what wines you're going to do at the tasting? Are you going to have at? It changes every time. I would assume it changes every year. I'm thinking of maybe doing a best of this year, but yeah, we've we've not repeated like pairing food or or wine wise a single year. Okay, like it, you know, like deviled eggs. I think we had with a really pretty like sparkling wine and like fried bologna sandwiches with a southern roan. 
Oh, I'm hungry already. I yeah. know. And it was really awesome. It's that guilty food. Oh, that, yeah. That, that you, you want all the time, but, uh, uh, you're not supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> and you give into it at two o'clock in the morning. Yes. When you're drunk in your kitchen. De- right, definitely. Exactly. <laughs> I recently started doing a thing with myself that, uh, at least, at least once a month, I will set a night out by myself to just, I'll buy a block of cheese and I'll get a bottle or two of wine. And that becomes my dinner pretty much. <laughs> After work, I'll come home and I'll just get into it and I'll finish the cheese. Uh, some, I, I try to save the cheese. It ends up not working out so much. No. Go through the whole block, get through the bottle, and it's just, it's it's fun times. And then you wake up the next day like the movie Hangover and you're trying to piece together the night yeah. before. <laughs> yeah. You're Man, like, where's why do all I, that cheese? Why yeah. do I have a face tattoo? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do enjoy the cheese quite a bit. That's something I've, I've always loved. Even growing up, I've just been a, a cheese nut. And now that I can combine that with wine, it's, it's, it's like, it's so awesome that I can find something to do where it's okay to eat as much cheese as I would like. <laughs> because it's like, it's, it's, it's weird. I, I used to have fantasies of coming home and just eating a block of cheese. Like this is back in like the, just like a Monterey Jack block. Uh-huh. Just because that's how much I like cheese. And now there's, I'm open to this whole world of cheeses, uh, because of the whole world of wine that I'm also introduced to. There's, there's different ways to pair different types of cheese with different types of wine. And it's. And beer. And beer they, is such is a great right? pairing for cheese. Yeah. yeah oh. We had a beer, beer cheese pairing here. I guess it was like before, shortly before we opened the beer store. Okay. Uh, it was amazing. It was an eye opener for me too. Like I worked with a cheesemonger and the, the, the guy that we hired to like open and, and basically curate the beer store too. Like it was, I was really schooled. Okay. It's great. Oh, Our cool. friend consistently does that. Our friend, uh, he works at a brewery. Oh, and, yes. And he, he also has a background in wine and he has gotten some of the sommelier certifications, but he, he has a passion for beer more than wine. But he, whenever, whenever we talk about wine, he'll sit down and be like, yo, you know, cause he's a younger guy. He'll be like, yo, you, as, as much as you think that goes perfectly with wine, you should try it with, xyz beers at the same time and it works perfectly and um and we're just kind of like i don't know it's outside of our knowledge base but we are very interested in it also because it's one of those those kind of gourmet things and it's hard to keep track of beer for me because there's so many there's as many different types of beer as there are uh wine almost i think it's just huge i've seen charts of it before and you it's just a huge amount of knowledge well the possibilities are endless because it's they follow recipes the brewers you know create their own recipes you know it, it may be a lager or a belgian ale or a sour but like all those things are created by 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 recipes that work around whatever kind of right. like grain that they're working with to make the beer it's really interesting and all the good old stuff is made by monks just like i never stuff. Yeah, I never understood that that kind of uh, paradox. It's like they're religious dudes, but then they're making the best beer ever. I don't know. But uh, also with beers, you can a lot of people are are making them themselves in their in their garages or their basements. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know if this is also a possibility for wine. Absolutely. There's a lot of guys that started out like buying fruit that was like leftover basically on the open market in various wine regions in California and elsewhere for that matter, and just you know crushing them in a in a glorified uh, garbage can and right. waiting for the fermenting <laughs> process to happen and draining off the juice, vinifying it and see what happens. Like, Interesting. I mean, it's a pretty ancient technique, you know, everybody's wanted to figure out a way to get a buzz off fruit for as long as, yeah. you know, we've been like walking upright. So it's, right. it's pretty cool. Yeah. And I, I picture people at home doing it the I Love Lucy style where they're just walking yeah. around with, yeah. crushing with their bare feet, pushing each other over. There's not a lot of the barefoot crush <laughs> anymore, but it, definitely people still do it. 
Okay. Have, have you uh, have you tasted any of this? Because I know you can't sell it. You're right. If you brew yourself, but you're not licensed, you can consume it and you can give it away for free, mm -hmm. but you can't, uh, you can't sell the like homebrew stuff. Yeah. Have the health had... department won't. Yeah. Have, have you had any of it though? Oh yeah. Um, we're one of our good friends, uh, that advised us actually on opening the beer store is an incredible brewer in his own right. And he's got his own club and, uh, knows just about all there is to know about, about brewing. But you know, he's not going to pursue getting like the sanction of the health department and, and figuring out facilities for that. It's incredibly difficult. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there hasn't, there, there's a weird little licensing thing where basically there hasn't been a distillery opened in LA before like the last one for like hundred years or something like that. I forget which one it was, but I was reading up on a distiller that was allowed to open in downtown and they were saying that it hadn't happened in like, I don't know, almost a hundred years because of the how stringent the, the rules are about mm -hmm. distributing. Uh, Eagle Rock Brewery, like, was a big, big step for them to get open. That's what, that I heard about them too, just mm -hmm. being a brewery. That was huge. Mm -hmm. Okay. Have you been to many uh, wineries that are maybe in Napa Valley or something to kind of see how the sausage is made, I guess? <laughs> Um, we did actually, when we were struggling to get this place open, we would have the lulls in between kind of like waiting for licensing or, or, or what have you, or, or construction on the space. And, uh, we would go do research, just hit the road, you know, pack some food, go visit wineries and then make it a day trip and come back home. And um, we did as much of that as we could. And then of course we just bought a, a ton of wine to, uh, experiment with and, and sample here. At home. Okay. Before we opened. Um, and meeting the winemakers is pretty key. Like, we would schedule appointments with them, and um, it just gave us great perspective. Okay. How do you feel about the movie Sideways? Uh, we got <laughs> asked that a lot when we opened, too. I, I really just loved the movie because I thought it was more uh, like an awesome character study. It just okay. it happened to be set in the world of wine, you know? it's. I, I think it was, it was kind of a... a, a sincerely a double-edged sword for the wine industry yes like people because of the way it characterizes i can people. barely give away merlot like to this day right like, that's, it, that's what i've heard from other sommeliers as well yeah the, the pinot noir started kicking up and merlot started kind of took a, a big hit because of the guy's opinion in the movie about it right yeah and, and it screwed up the way they were the growing the, the pinot the 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 because it's a, it's a delicate grape to grow, from what I hear. Mm -hmm. And so it, once you flood the market with all the grapes, it starts, it, the quality cool. of it goes down. The big joke in that movie, though, for people that are unfamiliar with the wine, is the, the that one character. It's been so long since I've seen it, but mm -hmm. so I'm unfamiliar with the details. But there was a favorite wine that he was after, and he wanted to taste while he was out tasting. And that one particular wine, I think, is a Bordeaux. And the variety or i think the it's vintage like one third merlot it's yes mm -hmm. that the the bordeaux that he's trying to taste is actually there's a lot of merlot in it right even though he hates merlot the one he pours into the to-go cup at a fast food restaurant yep. <laughs> and and most people that know about wine they get like oh there's the joke but p people that are just kind of like layman's and they're just watching the movie then now they're just like oh well i hate merlot now so they don't they okay. don't get it. They're I not, see. They're, it's a it's a joke that's being lost on them. Yeah, and I just found that out recently that, that in California anyway, that wines can have twenty five percent of a different wine, but still be classified as like a Merlot can have twenty five percent Cabernet and still be called a Merlot. Yeah. Without having to be called a blend. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I I just found that out. And I, I feel like that's cheating. Um. I mean, the the foreign winemakers will often not cop, cop to the what comprises their wine. Period. Like unless they're hmm. required to. Legally, okay. but they're, they're really not. Like, they don't, they kind of just mess around with whatever blend is going to work for their, their vintage. Because I can't imagine mixing wines myself. Like, if I had a bottle of Merlot and a bottle of Cab to put it in the same glass, that seems very weird to me. And I, like, 
it it'd be kind of uh, I don't know. It'd well, be doing dis- disrespect to the wine somehow. No, no. Well, it, all the a lot of the 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 wines out there that are regionals are all always blends. And then what you're trying to say is basically the the varietals when they have 25 percent of something else, it's still mostly that varietal. But all the stuff that's regional, it's it's all mixed. I mean, most of it's mixed. Even though it's from a specific region, you're getting a bunch of different grapes going in there, anyways. Yeah. So I that, mean, that's some, that's something I, I just learned and am shocked by. But by but by fine. the the lack and and they can have I think five to ten percent of wines from a different year even though it's a particular vintage so they they give them right. a little bit of room to to kind of make the wine taste a certain way if maybe that year there was too much rain or too little rain or there was mm-hmm. something that happened in the environment that kind of made the the grapes kind of hit a flavor profile that they weren't going after mm-hmm. so that, it, it's very important that they let them do that actually mm-hmm. otherwise. You, you put the handcuffs on them, flavor-wise, and yeah. you know they go broke because that whole year is, is worthless to them. Okay. So uh, tell us about some pairings. You do the cheese here as well, do you, but as, as far as outside of that, well, what do you find that's it's best for pairing for a Cabernet? Well, you know what? Um, it depends on the cab. I, I really think big California cabs are not, honestly, the best steak pairing that okay. I can think of. And I think people think steak, Cabernet, like it, it, the two are tied together in people's minds. Honestly, I'd rather have like a, an earthy Italian red with a steak or a, a French red with a steak because it doesn't get in the way quite as much. But for a cab, I like a really big, like if you are going to do a cab with food, a big roasted meat dish that's a little bit more gamey. Maybe like a smoked meat or some other game, you know, like a prime rib, not not a great candidate, in my opinion, for a big California cab pairing because it's like the lighter end of, of the cow world, right? right? It is. You know, maybe a New York strip. Yeah. Okay. And how, how about for a white wine? I, I guess it depends on which white. I mean, if you're talking about like a big buttery Chardonnay is awesome with, with some seafood. lobster, oh my you know, God. like, okay. but if you've got certain kind of seafood, honestly, a big buttery Chardonnay is too much. Maybe like a Spanish varietal, like um, an Albarino. I mean, they eat a lot, an awful lot of seafood in those countries, in the coastal areas and actually inland for that matter. And they, their wines, you know, reflect that they're not as... They're not as voluptuous. They are not as oaked if they're oaked at all. The grapes aren't as ripe, perhaps, because in that country they're cooler and that controls sugar content and therefore alcohol content. Okay. So if you're going to have this massive butter bomb, which unfortunately California's palates, like collectively, I feel, wine drinkers here became trained to expect a certain flavor profile out of white wines. And this is why I'm passionate about white wine. Okay. Because they're so misunderstood as far as everybody's just like, I really hate Chardonnay. Well, have you really tasted Chardonnay or have you tasted oak? Yeah. that I think that's my problem too with, with Chardonnay. Once you have a buttery, buttery Chardonnay, that <clears throat> and there's a difference there between the, the kind of like buttery flavor that, as opposed to the, the oaky flavor that you find in not only Chardonnays, but you find it in scotches, you find it in whiskeys. You, there's definitely that oak taste. If the you, toastiness if and the vanilla. Yes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and if, if you know the flavor of oak, then... You can recognize it pretty easily. But with Chardonnay, there's a certain butteriness that comes with it sometime, and it is so amazing with seafood, and I just love it. It's lovely, but it's really nice when it's just a little more spare, like when the oak is perhaps more neutral. Like a new oak barrel imparts a totally different vibe onto a Chardonnay or any other white for that matter than like a kind of a worn-out neutral barrel. Like it's been used for a couple of vintages. It just rounds it a little bit. What I, I love pairing white wine with Mexican food or a spicy food because it acts on the palate very much like a lime squeeze would. 
Okay. I agree. You know, like yeah. same thing with this, the kind of fruity wines that you want to serve with a turkey. It's like the same flavor profile in your mouth that the cranberry relish provides. Hmm. Go for that in a red that you have with poultry. Okay. And I think that I probably could get into whites because in the same way the, the reds are for me, they're depending on the region that it comes from, it, it, the flavor could be different for the same exact uh, varietal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe I've just had the wrong white wines that I just, I, they're not very tasty to me. Mm-hmm. So uh, perhaps maybe later you can uh, give me some white wines that are, are very flavorful that maybe could start converting me a little bit. Well, yeah. like the acidic kind of crispy stuff, it would be perfect for ceviche and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. That, that kind of acid profile that's different. Okay, so what would be a uh, an argument you would make to somebody that enjoys the red as I do? That mm-hmm. Besides, here, try this white wine, to, mm-hmm. because I'm sure that'll convince me. But if I was on the fence, what would you say to me to kind of get me to try the, the white side versus the red side? That the white is going to interfere less with your enjoyment of the food. Okay. I mean, a great pairing, red pairing, should also not interfere with your enjoyment of the food. Mm-hmm. but I, I see a lot of people that feel that feel as you do about white wine that are having like big, big old reds with like food that is going to suffer by consuming of the red with it. Okay. They're competing with each other. Yeah. They're competing with yes. each other. They're not marrying in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, or actually like if you're drinking something really tannic and you're eating something spicy, it's yeah. harder to enjoy it because the sure tannin is. locks the spice on your tongue. Um, it doesn't twist that. it away. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. Recently, we actually experienced that with um, we we were at a restaurant where we were having ch- uh, a cauliflower with a chipotle sauce, and and Adam was drinking a pinot, and and then he's like, I forgot what I was doing. Yeah, because <laughs> the the chipotle heat lingered in his mouth because right. of it. And I had heard that red is no good for spiciness, and it didn't click in my mind until it was too late. Like, well, this is a red, and I have spicy, and it just like. Was burning inside my mouth in a weird way, and then you didn't even taste the red anymore, right? I, I didn't taste anything. Because when for it's a while. yeah, with the spice, <laughs> yeah, but the white can kind of supersede that. Okay, interesting. All right, uh, one more thing I want to talk about before we wrap up. Uh, sure. You, you have a newsletter that you put out. Yes, that people are uh, big fans of. Actually, they are. John, my husband, that founded this company with me, wrote the newsletters exclusively like the first several years that we were open i i do a little bit more of them now but those newsletters have always been his baby and he's just he's got a way with like a kind of a a, a gentle um but fairly irreverent humor uh, okay. with the wine world because if there's anything the wine world needs it's a little bit of irreverence yeah um it's pretty like especially when we started the store we kind of hated the wine culture. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. I, I understand that. You know? Yeah. Uh, so, yes. I don't know. Do we really need all the stupid gadgets that seem to surround it? I don't think we do. So, we pick out, like, he started a little featurette on the newsletter a couple of years back that is entitled Wine Accessories That Make Us Uncomfortable and or Scared. Yes. <laughs> and then he, like, uses the initials of those words for short. Is Okay. And then we just choose some really unnecessary stupid wine accessory that we see on the internet or what have you and we feature it okay. do, you, do you have any uh ridiculous ones that you've had in the past that have come to mind that you could mention <laughs> i think maybe the the dumbest one was this welded wine rack that was so 
like monstrous and pokey and scary looking. And you couldn't tell how the wine like fit into this, like it looked like a medieval torture device and there was like wine jammed in there and it just seemed really, um, it was defending pompous, the wines. yet totally ineffective at the same yeah. time, you know, defending against yeah. intruders, like a bear. Right. They wouldn't get <laughs> yes. at the wines. I dare you to try to get a bottle of wine out of this rack. <laughs> All right. Very just cool. stuff like that. All right. So that goes out weekly or monthly. That's about every other week. Every other week. Yeah. Very nice. So it's a way for you to keep in contact with the community, the, the people that come here more often than not. Yeah. Very I nice. mean, you know, of course you want your newsletter to kind of tell them what's up. You know, winemaker right. A is coming in, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And we've got this going on or, or what, what have you. But it's like, it's really more, we would just want to get across like our voice and what we feel about wine and why it just, nobody should stress out about it, but just come <laughs> here and let us help. Okay. Uh, now, what are the hours that you are open? 11 to 9 every day, 11 to 11, um, Friday, Saturday, and Wednesday. We have no corkage on Wednesday nights, so you can stroll in, sit down for like seven, eight bucks for one of our like less expensive bottles of wine and have a night of it. Several okay. of the restaurants around here deliver right to the store. Oh, nice. interesting. I, yeah. I, actually, that's something I wanted to ask you about, the, the corkage fees. People bring, could bring their own bottles of wine in here as well? No. No? Mm-mm. Okay, because that, that seems like a weird concept to me that people would bring wine to, to restaurants or, or to a wine bar wouldn't make sense. But it, it ha, do you, have you ever had to take a bottle of wine to a restaurant or something like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I the corkage fees for a restaurant makes sense to me because okay. restaurants have such small margins on their food. And they they you fight really hard expense-wise, permit-wise, city-wise, everything-wise to have the right to pour alcohol in a glass for people. Right. So it – the corkage fees for everybody, ourselves included, even though our fees are super low, um, are a way to defray the costs that we're still paying off year eight for okay. installing the three-dip sink and the plumbing and the blah, blah, and the ADA codes. I mean, all that stuff is phenomenally expensive and the bar is really, really high. So that restaurant, mm. that wine bar needs to recoup those costs somehow. And it, okay. it costs me money to have a person sit in my wine bar and to have my employee walk over to that person and pour them their wine and to break those glasses and to wash them and to store them. It's all part of the weird hidden costs of what it is to have a wine bar or a restaurant. And that's why people have to do that. Agreed. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. Man. I hadn't thought about it that way. It's, it, it, but like, <laughs> I totally understand why people don't think of it that way. Like, who, nobody begged me to open a business or whatever. Like, it's like, that's my problem to solve. So, but that's why people have those in place. Okay. Very cool. So besides the, uh, the lazy lazy Sundays that you have for the wine tasting, uh, do you have any other events that are happening during the week? Uh, Friday, you said also? Friday night is the flight. Um, that's kind of our biggest night. That's, you know, what the neighborhood really turns out for. Um, okay. It's really fun. Our pours are, like, notorious and generous, and um, the wines are great. But Sunday is honestly the, the kind of more wine geek day. The wines are a little higher end. I, I have the okay. time to speak to each wine, specifically a little bit more to each one of our customers, and it's still a ridiculous deal. And then the other nights, it's just by the glass, and we have sangria Saturdays during the summer. It's like a, our white sangria recipe that's really amazing. Okay. Very yeah. good. Nice. Uh, and it, if they want to sign up for your uh, email list, then they can find that on your website? Yeah. On the homepage, there's a big button that says just, you know, punch here to enter your email address for the newsletter. And like I said, it comes out like every couple of weeks. Okay. Oh, and that's yeah. C-O-Wineco.com. Yep. Cowineco.com. That's right. Right. And uh, also the uh, sunsetbeerco.com for the... Sunset Beer. You can yes. check out our Facebook page. Right. And we'll put links mm-hmm. on our website and everything. And, oh, uh, thanks. We, we have some pictures that we took of the, of the establishment here that we'll also post. Uh, so uh, thank you so much for joining us, Jennifer. It's my pleasure. Thank you for, thank you for coming. And until next time, I'm Adam. I'm Rex. Bye. Look at them luscious little bottles Sitting up on the shelf 
Red, green and yellow law 